Hello, I'm Vladislav Zubok, Professor of International History at LSC, and uh, we just uh, held uh, an international workshop uh, um, about nationalism in Europe and Russia. And here we are having a small debate uh, among the participants of this workshop. Vera uh, Tots, Professor of uh, History at uh, University of Manchester. Uh, and Jeffrey Hosking, uh, Professor Emeritus, University College London. And uh, Viktor Opryshenko, Southern Federal University, Rostov-on-Don, Russia. The title is Nationalist Wars in Europe, and uh, what immediately comes up uh, in, in our imagination, of course, are the Balkan Wars, the wars in Yugoslavia in the early 90s. That's the last time we saw big, uh, big conflagration of, of, of ethnic hatred, nationalism, uh, that uh, uh, reached, uh, as some believe, genocidal proportions. Um, the foundation of Respublika Srpska, uh, tanks moving uh, uh, against uh, Slovenia and Croatia, declaring independence, and uh, it became a nightmare. Uh, my first question probably would be to uh, 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 Professor Hosking. Do you think this Yugoslav scenario uh, do you, uh, is applicable to today's uh, 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 confrontation between Ukraine and Russia? Is there any Milosevic on the horizon? Well, you have to understand the specific situation in Yugoslavia uh, after 1991, and especially, in fact, the situation in Croatia, because there, there was a Serb minority living in small towns and villages who felt very vulnerable. They remembered that during the Second World War, the Ustashi, the Croatian uh, secret police and, and military formations, had destroyed their villages, had arrested people, taken them off to labor camps, had tortured them, and they were afraid the same thing was going to happen again because Croatia had declared its independence with the support of the European Union. So these Serbs knew they had to defend themselves. There was nobody else who was going to defend them. Uh, and that was the beginning of these terrible wars. And Milosevic spotted the chance uh, to use this kind of Serbian defensive but also very aggressive nationalism as a basis for reformulating communism as a Serbian nationalist movement, nationalist in the sense that Serbia would expand and take over the whole of Yugoslavia, uh, at least probably minus Croatia. Uh, now, I, I don't think the situation in uh, Crimea or in uh, Russia today is similar at all. I can't see any direct threat to Russians in Crimea or indeed to Russian speakers in the rest of Ukraine. Uh, although Putin, of course, likes to suggest that they have been threatened by fascists, I think there's very little evidence for that on the ground. So I don't think the situation is really very similar. Uh, and uh, Putin, of course, does have a kind of Russian nationalist ideology. In a sense, he's even trying to restore Russian influence uh, uh, through as much of the former Soviet Union as he can. But the basic real fear is not there, I think. Uh, to follow up on this, uh, uh, Russian voices and opinions of Russians themselves, particularly Russian experts, are not very well represented in Western media. Um, uh, I, uh, what comes to my mind recently was an article by Vice uh, uh, Dean of uh, European University in St. Petersburg, a uh, uh, respected historian, Boris Kolonitsky, who raised the question, why many Russians back Putin. How would you comment on, on, on this question yourself? You're a specialist in uh, Russian history, Russian identity during the Soviet times in particular. What is a Russian identity today? Uh, is it nationalist? Is it ethno-nationalist? What kind of, uh, what, what, what does it mean for this, uh, for this conflict? Uh, 
Well, I think Russian nationalism today is mainly statist. Um, and although there's no, I think, genuine fear amongst Russian speakers in Ukraine of being deported by the Ukrainian government, taken to concentration camps or anything like that, Russians themselves in Russia do feel that they're being surrounded by NATO, by the European Union, and they do feel that as a threat. And I think that's probably true of the majority of the Russian population, certainly not all. Uh, but that's what Boris Kolonitsky was talking about, and I think he's quite right. Uh, my next question is for Viktor. You, you're from southern Russia, and uh, um, we uh, don't know really how Russians think about this situation. Um, can we talk about Russian nationalism or Russian nationalisms? Can we talk that in some regions of Russia, particularly closer to Crimea, closer to Ukraine, such as Rostov-on-Don, there are more anxiety, let's say, that in other regions such as Siberia. How would you comment on, on, on real situation on the ground in Russia? Yeah, uh, it's quite an interesting question because regional identities uh, is a very huge world for, 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 for Russia. Uh, as for southern Russia, it, it's very peculiar situation because actually in historical context, southern Russia is quite multi-ethnical and multicultural region. And so we have huge tradition of international communication there, uh, which originated from uh, even ancient time, because uh, if you know, the uh, most northern colony of Greek world is at south of Russia, the city which called Tanais. Well, uh, as for contemporary situation, it is strange mix of traditionalism and traditional way of thinking and responses for uh, contemporary challenges. Uh, as another, uh, in other parts of Europe, uh, south of Russia experience uh, migration inflow and this is uh, and this require for responses for this um, migration inflow from uh, another uh, another hand um, there is deep traditionalism of thinking and traditionalism of political political behavior is character for for the south of, of russia um, can i give brief example uh, of one event which happened one year ago. It was um, middle of March of 2013 when football game between mm -hmm. two teams, uh, one of them from Kazan and another one from Chechen Grozny happened in, in Moscow, I think. And it was uh, 85th minutes of the game when referees sent one of the Chechen players off the field. At the same moment, any voices in microphone system under the stadium told that a referee is for sale. It was a few seconds of absolutely silence on stadium, mm. and nobody uh, knew who, who made this comment. And after the game, the president of Chechnya, Ramzan Kadyrov, confessed it was him who made this comment. And when uh, he was asked why, and what is the reason for this comment? Uh, he answered, I protected Chechen honor. Uh, and when he was asked about prospective reaction of President of Russia, Putin, who is his boss, he answered, I am soldier for Putin. 
if he will punish me, I will accept it. <laughs> so uh, this is uh, this is quite interesting example because uh, it make uh, the picture of relationship between federal governments and uh, regional governments. This relationship based on traditional personal hierarchical relations. So uh, Kadyrov is patron of Chechens as Putin is patron of Kadyrov. So uh, there is only about personal relations and these personal relations determine situation uh, within the region. And so uh, it's it's strange strange mix of contemporary situation and contemporary challenges like migration, for example, uh, and this deep traditionalism of relationship. Interesting that you mentioned hierarchy. I also uh, what comes to mind when you mention Rostov and Don are the Cossacks, and uh, that Cossacks uh, really get attention when uh, the word Cossack appears in Western media or pictures of Cossacks. Mm -hmm. Many, many people remember various things about those Cossacks, the Cossacks and pogroms, the Cossacks and civil war. Um, who are these Cossacks? At some point they ended, uh, they, they, uh, they popped in Crimea. Cossacks are coming. So who are these Cossacks? Do they have uh, also this kind of uh, hierarchical relationship to Putin, whatever the boss says, or they have their own identity and their own passion, passionate nationalism? Uh, good question, uh, because uh, this is again story about traditionalism, because uh, as it, I'm sure know that Cossacks is very local population. There are few versions about origination of, of the Cossack society at south of Russia, uh, well, uh, but um, uh, in any case, uh, it was originated from 16th century. It was very multicultural society, uh, which included people who escaped from feudals in, from central part of Russia, and some Muslims, and some Turkish, and some nomads who lived in this region. In any case, it was very multicultural uh, society. But then, during the evolution of 17th, 18th, 19th century, uh, and well, uh, it was tragedy of Cossack society during the civil war. The Cossackization. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. And under the Soviet regime, uh, this uh, society was forbidden. And then it was renaissance of Cossackship. But uh, it's strange transformation. Of Are they real Cossacks? That's my question. Uh, they come from the same families that considered themselves Cossacks, well, say 100 years ago. Or they are fake. Yeah, uh, it, 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 it's hard to say because it's enough if you are proclaimed yourself as Cossack. Uh, no, nobody interested in in true nature of this of your origination, for for example. But how do they feel ethnically? M many Cossacks came from well, Ukraine in the absolutely. old days. Uh, and this is important issue because they pretend to be local Slavonic population <coughs> and nobody interested in true story of origination of Cossacks, I, I mean about Muslim component of Cossack society. They pretend to be Slavonic population and that is why they pretend uh, to protect this Slavonic population from Muslims who mm. came from mm. the North Caucasus or Asia uh, and so on. Uh, and I'm afraid that this tradition, 
and traditionalism of Cossack society is one of the reasons of inter-ethnic clashes at south of Russia. Now I would like to turn to Professor Todds, and uh, you, you've, you've made a, a, a study of um, Russian and Western media and how this media uh, looks at the problem of nationalism, looks at the problem of ethnicity and inter-ethnic conflicts. Uh, can you comment of, of, of changes in, in this uh, presentation of uh, ethnicity and nationalism in Russian media, let's say, during, during the last couple of years, and particularly during the last several months? Um, first, I would like to uh, make a point that um, the media landscape, even in Russia, is not uniform, and uh, the Russian media are much less um, uni uh, uniform and monovocal uh, than uh, is widely believed in the West. Uh, and, um, for instance, in particular, the print media um, can exp express a variety of opinions television, uh, which is widely watched, uh, federal state-aligned television, which is the main source of information for the majority of the population, uh, is more controlled. But even there, uh, we uh, don't have the situation as existed in the, the Soviet Union, when everything which was broadcast was quite predictable and coincided with the position of the Kremlin. Now we have a situation of sort of performed pluralism, and, but even performed pluralism can't be fully controlled. Um, and I'm what does it mean performed? Uh, so that you have people uh, on television actually criticizing the government. Hmm. Uh, and sometimes criticism is very bold. But, uh, but it's all very staged. Often, staged. Uh, yes, staged. Performance staged. 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 Yeah, it's staged or staged uh, pluralism. But even that, even this controlled staged pluralism can't be fully managed. And I would hmm. say the management uh, very often breaks down. There has been, uh, uh, there have been very interesting developments since Putin's elections in March 2012. The representation of uh, ethnic relation, how Russian nation uh, is depicted has changed dramatically. Uh, the emphasis uh, on Russians as an orthodox uh, nation rather than hmm. multi-ethnic, multicultural increased dramatically. And also state-controlled television picked up um, the issue which it hadn't covered very much before, and that's the issue of migration and how it affects Russian identity, Russian society. Is it viewed and, as a threat? Yes. And uh, what is uh, interesting that it's probably a response again to public opinion, as journalists and the authorities understand it. Uh, and again, one didn't need to take into account public opinion in the Soviet period. Uh, the presentation of migration issue uh, completely contradicts Putin's uh, presidential manifesto of January 2012. Mm where Putin said that Russia was a country welcoming to migrants, Russians had an open soul and could integrate migrants. Yeah, that has been his standard sort uh, of take yes, all the time. Yes, standard take and uh, also the argument that the Russian economy relies on migrants. And that had been the line of the two main television channels, uh, which basically are perceived to be subordinate and are subordinate to the Kremlin, and that's Channel One and Russia. 
but uh, uh, around the autumn of 2012, uh, particularly Russia Channel, and that is the state-owned channel, mm-hmm. uh, started a very vicious anti-immigration campaign attacking oh. migrants from Central Asia and uh, also calling migrants, and sometimes it's illegal migrants, um, the uh, people from the North Caucasus, despite the fact that these are Russia's citizens. Um, and there have been, uh, at least implicit, without uh, calling Putin by name, criticism of the position expressed in his article. Mm. Um, and it seems to me that this is a kind of response, in a way, to public <coughs> opinion uh, following the protest movement, uh, which started after unpopular Duma elections in November 2011, and um, which followed Putin's re-election to the third presidential term. Now, how this coverage uh, of migration compares to the coverage um, uh, of the same issue in EU countries? Here I would say that there is uh, a variety of uh, media landscapes across the EU, and uh, I would say that what Russia um, broadcasts, it's, it's public broadcaster. Yeah, it's not a sort of yellow press, it's, it's an official public broadcaster. It is actually quite similar to what you can find on Italian public television. Ah, I think it's worth saying uh, here that uh, the, the, the Russian reaction to immigration, the population's mm. reaction to immigration, is actually in many respects similar to that of European yeah. populations, mm. because what mm. they object to is, first mm. of all, immigrants' dominations of the markets, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the public markets that you see in the towns, and secondly, that immigrants are taking away jobs which Russians yeah. ought to have yeah. and lowering yeah. Russian wages. So that's very yeah. similar. Yeah. Yeah, b- yeah. Uh, but reaction of governments is deeply another th- than in Europe, because uh, uh, as we are uh, told, the reaction of Russian governments is some kinds of events or something to stop migration and uh, this picture of uh, migrant as enemy and alien. In Europe, I would say that government's reaction on public opinion is just political rhetoric, but not any... any I would say that government mm -hmm. positions are different. But uh, probably we would be interested in um, yeah, just one difference uh, of Russian state television. Now migration is used also to kind of, uh, is linked to alleged Western conspiracy against Russia. Ah, and it's argued so that the West this, um, is using migration in order to undermine Russia's security. And you don't have this kind of line of argument, obviously, in the kind of. Uh, I would like Western to follow up on this uh, issue mm. of insecurity, and which leads to uh, internal uh, source of uh, nationalist reactions of, let's say, Slavic Russians or Slavic citizens of Russia to non-Slavs coming mostly from Central Asia. This was internal insecurity, and that uh, raises, uh, you know, the issue of Putin's popularity because many people. Uh, I, question even uh, Putin's uh, managing of this, uh, this uh, issue of migration, how Putin, why Putin allows so many migrants to, to appear in Moscow and other Russian cities. 
And that links, uh, uh, that uh, raises the question to what extent is domestic source of nationalist mobilizations of Russians versus migrants is linked to today's crisis about Ukraine. Because now, you know, you protecting Russians or Russian speakers in Crimea against whom? Against uh, Ukrainian nationalists. Is, are we seeing e externalization of that tension inside the country? Here's the outside enemy. Already West, the West was mentioned as another outside enemy. Uh, I suggest we would discuss this issue. Well, yes, it's also that they look back at history and they remember the Bandera movement in the Second mm. World War. Bandera, okay. of course, conducted And who, who didn't remember, well reminded by state media about who Bandera mm. was. Now, yes, everyone people who knows. have lived in Ukraine mm. and the yes. older generation, yes. they remember that because Stalin, of course, and the post-Stalin regime mm. Uh, repeatedly mentioned the danger of banderisti, and uh, so now that can be quite easily revived. That memory. Yes, uh, but I I couldn't say that this situation is about conspirology. I would I would say that the uh, Russian image of migrant is quite the same than in Europe. I mean, it's typical characteristic of human being uh, to. Uh, to make image of any alien as dangerous. For example, migrants are dangerous for economic stability and migrants are dangerous for even for physical health. It's the same situation in Europe and in Russia. So I can't say that uh, this security situation with migrant uh, mm. ethnic migration is it's quite specific in but Russia. What I'm driving at, uh, without going too much in this direction of conspirology and conspiracy, mm. here you have a clear-cut situation. Domestic pressure is rising. The regime uh, is said to be corrupt by many people in Russia. They're corrupt also by the, uh, through uh, importing cheap labor from Central Asia. That sort of pollutes our cities and you know threatens the the Slavic characteristic of core Russia. Now, what is the response from from the government to that? Little victorious annexation, uh, little foreign policy success. I would agree that um, the, 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 this kind of claim that uh, Russia uh, now is defending uh, Russian speakers, very vague um, words are used to define whom Russia is supposed to defend. Uh, is one of the reasons for Putin's policies is to give government the government some kind of mission which the government thinks uh, the population will respond to positively. Mm -hmm. And uh, this kind of reference to Russia being a defender of uh, uh, Russian speakers abroad uh, first start to be used by Yeltsin's government. We should remember that in actually the early 1990s, mm -hmm. but it is never it, uh, under Yeltsin, and until recently, uh, until 2008, uh, the war, um, Russia's war with Georgia, um, Russia used this claim of defense uh, purely at the rhetorical level, but now it's backed by a sort of military um, intervention. But one of the reasons uh, for the current campaign, it's probably not the prime reason in the Crimea, but one of the reasons is to indeed sort of mobilize the population uh, behind uh, the government at the time when the government can offer the population very little. Professor Hosking, is there a threat of nationalists to uh, the Putin government? It may sound paradoxical for some uh, Russian people. Russian nationalists or Ukrainian? Russian nationalists. Right, okay. Or Russian nationalists. Yes, Russian nationalists. No, I understand, yes. 
Well, uh, the point about Russian imperial or statist nationalism is that it is in principle multi-ethnic. Uh, and this was true in the 19th century and it's true in the Soviet period and it's true against now. And uh, quite a lot of people who I would call ethnic or cultural Russian nationalists feel that their own culture is being devalued by this uh, constant um, giving way to, uh, to, to non-Russians on Russian territory. I mean, Chech this was... Chechnya was mentioned, for Chechnya instance, was mentioned, and, and that, of course, there's the additional uh, threat of Islamic terrorism there. But uh, you may remember uh, uh, Solzhenitsyn, and not only Solzhenitsyn, used to complain about the uh, non-Russian nature of so much of Russian policy. And, of course, in Stalin's late years, anti-Semitism was promoted by Stalin partly because of popular national feeling, uh, particularly in Ukraine, actually. So um, I think that there is real problem about a mismatch between Russian statist nationalism and Russian ethnic nationalism. They're two mm. different things, and they sometimes clash. And I think that actually the clash incre is, increasing is increasing now because yes. uh, Putin's ideology policies are very much based on the idea of Russia as a great power. And that depends on the creation of this Eurasian Union with uh, Central Asian states yes. and also the, in the past um, Putin hoped to integrate Ukraine. But uh, Russia's control over the Caucasus, engagement with Central Asia is very much part of Putin's sort of this neo-imperial vision. And it's not really supported by the majority of the population. The majority of the population now, it's more than, uh, we have uh, actually reliable opinion polls showing that around 60% of the population say they would like to give up North Caucasus. So there is actually a clash between neo-imperial uh, agenda of the Russian government in the South and East yes. and Popular yes, popular. in fact, mm. thought Russia should give oh, up the Caucasus. Okay, we have all this, and this is very, very interesting, but it's domestic context. Mm -hmm. uh, if we inter internationalize it and introduce Ukrainian nationalists who become sort of bogeyman uh, for, for the Russians because of state, uh, state uh, media, state-controlled media, and if we introduce now the United States and the West, that most of Russians associate with the United uh, States, uh, we know back to Yugoslav scenario that there was recognition by Germany of Slovakia, Slovenia, and Croatia that triggered much much of that those events. In this case, Europe, so-called European Union, and the West, uh, and and the, uh, and the United States stand firmly on the side of Ukraine. That means against Russia. How this external pressure, external threats. Now we have, uh, of course, in London, uh, Kerry and Lavrov talking and uh, last news that, that the talk broke down without achieving anything. So no compromise. Uh, how this external pressure can change the discussion among Russians? Well, the, the Russian government, and not only the Russian government, sees what's been happening in the last 10 years as a steady strengthening of the power of the United States, of the European Union, and above all of NATO, which joins the United States and the European Union. And it's expanded into the former Warsaw Pact countries and then also into the Baltic states, part of the former Soviet Union. Russians take that very seriously. That They feel that as a real insult and pressure. But Ukraine is the big one. Ukraine is the big one because it's a huge country, very closely associated ethnically with Russia. and. To see Ukraine being seriously considered for NATO membership, you know, that's very serious. And then the idea 
that it might become part of the European Union, even by association, that's quite bad enough. Uh, Putin's perception is that the West tries to tear, tear, tear off Ukraine yes. away from Russia. Yes. The Western actions actually give some food to this perception. Indeed they do, yes. I mean, uh, the European Union has constantly handled this issue as if it had to be either the European Union winning or Russia winning. There was no intermediate uh, position and no option apparently for Russia, the EU and Ukraine to negotiate together on what kind of ties to create. I want to turn to Victor, yes, what do you think? It's interesting because I would say that the Ukrainian situation, uh, contemporary Ukrainian situation, is the example of fail of diplomacies, both EU and Russian yes. Yes. diplomacy in Ukraine, because uh, it, it, it was possible to predict this situation, but di diplomatic services, both of EU and Russia, did nothing before this. I would add to this that uh, also in part, of course, Putin's policies are a reaction to what the Russian establishment regards as a humiliation of the 1990s. And there, uh, uh, and the perception, again, not entirely unfounded, that the West, particularly the United States, use Russia's weakness to uh, kind of uh, move into the areas which Russia historically regarded as its um, uh, sphere of influence and deliberately humiliate Russia. And one of the kind of examples which still, I think, rile Putin and his entourage is uh, uh, the decision on uh, to bomb uh, Serbia. Yes. Uh, and uh, Russia at the time, uh, I think, had a partnership agreement with NATO, which uh, included um, a provision for any use of force by NATO in Europe to be negotiated with uh, Russia. And uh, the then um, Foreign Minister Primakov was actually flying to Washington uh, oh, to yeah, famous, negotiate, uh, yes, negotiate what will happen with Serbia, and on the plane he found out that the bombing started, and that yes. sort of Russia well, felt as a huge humiliation. We yes. all remember that, and uh, now people may say, so what? It happened, of course. What we're supposed to do? Much mm. of the press, mm. all the covers of major mm. newspapers mm. And, and, and journals have Putin's face. Uh, present, Russia is uh, presented in the in uh, image of a wild bear out of control. What if we talk uh, about the situation, how to defuse this dangerous crisis? What can, should the West think about and what should the West do differently, maybe? Not to give some advice to policymakers, but what kind of uh, stories they should probably recall at this moment that would, make, um, uh, that would uh, help them to deal with, with Russia, not just as a bear, but as a country with uh, such complexity of feelings and, uh, and, and, uh, and historical memories. Let's start maybe with Victor. Uh, Quickly, because uh, we have a few minutes yes, left. Uh, it's easy and difficult to answer. It, is it because just one will negotiation uh, with Russia and understanding that everyone in this game, both EU and Russia and USA has their own geopolitical interests and negotiation. Uh, this is easy, but difficult as well because uh, it's, it's hard to predict behavior of Russian governments and Ukrainian governments and European governments. So, uh, and that is why 
I would say that I can't predict the situation and can't say what it's necessary to do in order to stop this situation. What you wouldn't do? Negotiation. Oh, you would negotiate yeah. and you yeah. wouldn't uh, impose sanctions, for instance? Absolutely. Not, no sanctions. No. A person from Rostov-on-Don <coughs> does not like sa Western sanctions. That's predictable. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we have to impose sanctions of some kind because Russia has violated international law and also its own treaty obligations under the Budapest Memorandum of 1994. We, we have to impose sanctions. We have to take a fairly hard line. And then but I, no, but just a moment. But no, but well, yes, indeed. I mean, but... Uh, you know, if you're going to play hardball, you must expect the other side to do that as well. I but in the long run, no, I, in the long run, we have to aim at negotiations. We eyeball have to. to eyeball and one side blink. That's the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis for you. Well, at the moment, it's not a, a, an earth-shattering nuclear event, but... Uh, yeah, but yeah. Russia is a nuclear power. Indeed I, it is. I would agree with mm. Jeffrey. It's exactly what I would have said, that uh, there, has to be, uh, there have to be some consequences. Yes. Uh, uh, because otherwise, um, probably Russia won't stop at the Crimea. But at the oh. same time, you should uh, keep the door open for negotiations. There shouldn't be a situation where there is basically no contact, no communication between Russia and, let's say, the states, as it was the case when Reagan came to power, and yes. that was a very dangerous yeah. situation. Well, I do remember that uh, in the Yugoslav case, uh, Americans and the West in general continued to talk to Milosevic, and then their patience snapped, and that was mm. the moment when the, the Yugoslav war began. Uh, in this case, uh, we it's impossible. We're not talking force. about war. We're no. not yeah. talking no. about war, but since no. the war is in the title, it needs to be raised. But it's a huge issue how to calibrate between responses to unacceptable international behavior and tying up the knot that would prevent some way out of this dangerous situation. That's exactly right, and that is the skill of diplomats to be able to do that. I'm gl very glad I'm not a diplomat having to deal with Russia at the moment. At this moment, this I'm happy too. I'm yes. not a diplomat. Thank you all for this wonderful discussion. I'm Vladislav Zubok, Professor of International History at LSC, and my thanks to Viktor Oprishenko from Russia, uh, Jeffrey Hosking, uh, Russia, and uh, Vera Tolls, University of Manchester. Thank you all.